1: Chris coming back at you again with another solo episode, "Maps of Meaning," part two, part de. Uh, and as I'm sitting here in the studio, I notice Kyle's sunglasses are still sitting here from last week, so I'm taking a look at them. Pretty cool, Kyle. Pretty cool. I have to decide if I want to wear these some bitches. Um, okay. All right, getting back to it, guys. Um, where we left off before was just kind of an introduction of Jordan Peterson, um, because we again we talk about him all the time, and I don't know maybe something better than fifty percent of the references that we're dropping our Jordan Peterson lines. So, so I just wanted to wanted to talk more about him and let let the audience know uh, the stuff I find interesting. So we're going to keep doing that today. The last time we talked, Jordan Peterson, um, we we talked a little bit about, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how to recap in the best way, maybe just to say um, that there's a difference between the scientific viewpoint of the world and the mythological viewpoint, um, and that both have value, both have, uh, you know, um, I mean, they're both worthwhile pursuits, you might say. So what we're going to do today is talk more about the the mythological landscape. So if you remember from the last time, we talked about characters that exist in this mythological world and um uh they sort of exist in each in each of our minds, you might say, but we also see them in the stories that we tell. So that's why I'll call them, you know, the mythological landscape. Um It's interesting, though, that we see them in the stories we tell about our own lives and uh, in the stories that we tell, uh, that we've been been telling one another for thousands of years in our myths. Um, And so those characters in the the mythological story are the known, the unknown, and the knower. And the knower, again, is that force that mediates between the known and the unknown, the force that goes into the unknown and turns it into known. Um, So... Without further ado here, just to intro this, I want to I read a line here. Anything unknown is dangerous and promising simultaneously. So this is an intro to talk about one of the characters in, the, in this mythological landscape. Today, we're going to talk about chaos. We're going to talk about the unknown. And I'll use that word unknown or chaos synonymously. I'm talking about the same thing. So today is Chaos Day. Uh, The next time we get together, it'll be Order Day, and we'll do the known. But for today, we're going to do the unknown. All right, here we go. Imagine yourself coming face-to-face with death, unexpectedly, and completely unprepared. Maybe you wandered off the path while visiting Mayan ruins in the jungles of Guatemala, a particular fantasy of mine, by the way. Uh, and on the woodline, standing directly in front of you appears a jaguar, as if out of nowhere. It's looking at you like a six-foot-tall can of friskies. What do you do? You have no idea. So what do you do? You freeze, paralyzed by fear. And all of your attention, I mean 100% of it, is focused entirely on the source of that fear The rest of the landscape fades away. And in that tense moment, it's just you and the jaguar. What do you notice about it? Everything. Its subtle movements, its eyes and shiny coat, its teeth. It's so beautiful, so threatening. And you cannot look away. It has gripped you. It has gripped you. And here's another one. Now imagine you come home from work early and you want to surprise your spouse. So you stop for flowers and you head home. When you arrive, however, something's not right. You head to your room and you open the door. And bam! You see your spouse making love to somebody else. A stranger on your bed. What do you do? You have no idea. So what do you do You freeze, paralyzed by fear. The rest of the room fades away, and it's just you and this terrible reality. What do you notice about it? Everything. You cannot look away. It has gripped you. All right, guys, so what do these two situations have in common? Both of them are an encounter with the unknown. So you might think about... You might think about a rat that comes in contact with a cat in the the wild and it freezes and it's looking around. It smells the cat. It's looking around for the danger. It doesn't know what to do. It's it's sitting there having an encounter of the unknown, something that's terrible, terrifying, something that's world-destroying. And what does it do? It freezes, fight or flight, that sort of thing. This is what I'm describing here in both of these situations. Whether it be you running, in, uh, running into a jaguar in the, in the chuggle, or you walking in on your wife with another man. Either way, either way, you've, en- you've encountered chaos. You've stepped right into it. What happens? What happens then? Your world literally falls apart. You don't know how to act. Your plans for the future are disrupted. Shit! Standing face to face with a jaguar, you may not have a future to consider at all. Standing face to face with your wife, um, sleeping with another guy, let's say, uh, obviously puts your future in a different perspective. Um, but again, this idea of being struck with fear and awe in this situation—your hair standing on 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 end—you know, um, this is the same sort of experience that a rat has when it comes into contact with a cat. So there's something about the unknown that is deeply, deeply terrifying. It causes us to stop what we're doing and to pay attention to it. Um, so this is this is going to be the topic today. We're going to get into the, the, the chaos or the unknown um, in just beginning with those, those couple of examples. Alright, so let's recap the mythological landscape and Jordan Peterson would maybe even call this the psychological landscape, and there's not a lot of difference uh, in Jordan's mind from the mythological and the psychological. And the reason is that, according to Jung and, and Jordan Peterson as well, that um, we have instincts, and those instincts are something Jung calls archetypes, and we're kind of adapted to them. And so they are, in some ways, they are these uh, they are these mythological characters that we talked about that populate our our internal world they populate our fantasies and our dreams um so so these are the same sorts of things that we we tell stories about and those stories are, are what we call myth and religion so again there's there's something some connection here that Jordan is making between our inner world our you know the the subjective world um and the mythological world that these are really one and the same thing somehow that that these myths are the sort of collective telling of the stories of the Characters in our heads, in our internal world, these are what Jung and Jordan would call transpersonal forces. That they correspond to our instincts. These are things that drive us, that are unconscious, that we're not really aware of, except in those moments. And again, I'll use an analogy here. But except in those moments when we have a devil on on our left shoulder and an angel on our right shoulder. In those moments when we're trying to make a decision and we're torn between the good and the bad and we don't know what decision we're going to make, um, you know, this is, this is the moment when we realize that there is a mythological narrative behind the scenes going on. When we picture that situation where we have an angel on one shoulder and a devil on the other, we have, we have these transpersonal forces that are in conflict in our own head. The one that says, be, be faithful uh, to your to your spouse, and be an honorable person, and the one that says, you know, go for the pleasure, cheat on her, go right ahead, you know, those two forces exist, they're alive and well in your psyche, they're fighting with one another, that struggle is the story that we tell in myth. So this is what I mean, that, that you know, that story of these Um, hostile brothers, you know, this is a theme that goes through myth, like you could think of like Cain and Abel, this is the same thing, the same story that's being told um, about the devil on one shoulder and the angel on the other, that there are these competing forces going on in, in your inner world, and it's really a drama that's playing out in your life, and it's so unconscious for the most part that it's invisible to us. But it's playing out nonetheless, and we tell those stories nonetheless. We've been telling those stories since the beginning of civilization, probably well before that, sitting around the campfire, telling stories about our myths and religions, which are simply sp- spelling out these stories that we live. All right, so here, let's get to Jordan now. He says, Human beings are prepared biologically to respond to anomalous information, to novelty so I'll stop there just to say, anomalous information and novelty is what he's ta- what he's referring to when he's talking about chaos or the unknown. So you you run into something that you've never experienced before, you don't know how to act, uh, you know doesn't doesn't have meaning yet. Let's say something like that. So um, so this is that anomalous information or novelty. We're talking about the same thing when we say chaos or the unknown. So I'll start over here. Human beings are prepared biologically to respond to anomalous information, to novelty. This instinctive response includes redirection of attention, generation of emotion, which is fear at first, and then curiosity, and then behavioral compulsion, which is stop doing what you're doing. You know, he says cessation of ongoing activity. Stop doing what you're doing. You freeze and you look at the thing that's that's uh, unknown. You You try to understand it, and it brings kind of compels you without if even you you know you making an effort it compels your attention to it and he says this pattern <clears throat> this pattern of instinctive responses drives learning and all such learning takes place as a consequence of contact with novelty so this is interesting and this is him pointing out that even though that unknown that we've been talking about that encounter with chaos that I gave in those examples of the rat and the cheating wife and the jaguar that those are terrifying uh, situations, but they're also potentially promising situations. So you might wonder, well, what do you mean, Chris? What do you mean by that? How can how can walking in on your spouse cheating on you be a be a promising situation? Well, I mean, take a step back from it ask yourself that question what comes to mind I mean you, you've you learned sooner rather than later that your wife is not faithful to you that she doesn't have the same uh, dedication and seriousness and her love and her commitment that, that you do so it's probably better that you found out sooner rather than later you could, you could suffer under that delusion for years and years it's better you found out now um, maybe you look at that as an opportunity to, you know, to have a new relationship, to have something more beneficial, more mutual, more, you know, more, more genuinely loving, you know, so there are promises built into this terrible unknown, even in the situation of the wife cheating on the on the husband, um, you know, when the Jag with the Jaguar situation, if you don't die in that encounter, well, then you're going to figure out a couple of things you're going to learn, well, how you you behaved that allowed you to avoid being killed. Maybe you learned something about a jaguar. Maybe you learned something about its habits. Some something about it that you didn't know before. Something that they might be useful. Uh, you never know. So the point is that when he says that encountering the unknown, um, it sort of brings your attention to it um, at first from fear, like you get frozen by it, but then curiosity. You know, the moment you don't die the fear begins to decline, and it's replaced by curiosity. As soon as you know that the thing isn't dangerous or not immediately dangerous, you cannot help but then take a closer look, then take a breath and examine it and watch it. That's what we do, human beings. We observe things, and in doing that, we're learning. So this is what he says, that that we have this instinctive response when we encounter something that we don't know and that response is to be afraid to focus our attention on it and then to explore it to use our curiosity or that instinct to, towards curiosity to explore it and learn about it and so he says that drives learning he says all learning takes place as a consequence of contact with the unknown and that's true you know you can you can explore the known all day long you already know it what are you going to learn from that nothing you already know it The place where you learn things is the unknown, going out into the chaos and learning something new. So again, just the takeaway here is that it's something that is terrifying, but it's also potentially beneficial. And there's no way of knowing exactly what benefit might come from that. All right, so Jordan goes on, what is novel? Um, So he says, what is novel is dependent on what is known. Furthermore, what is known is always known conditionally, since human knowledge is necessarily limited. So this is interesting. Um, This is really interesting for a couple of reasons, because he's saying that what is unknown, he uses the word novel, but he's saying here, what is unknown is different for everybody. It's dependent on what is already known. You know, the, the, the unknown is the stuff outside of the realm of things you already know. So that's interesting that, that the the idea of this chaos that kind of impacts us all the same way, that we have an instinct towards, that we know how to behave when we encounter the unknown instinctively, it's built into us, that, um, uh, that that's something that um, is different for everybody. What I know is not the same thing as what you know. So what's unknown to me is not the same as what's unknown to you. But what is consistent is that you and I both have this this same you might say identical experience of unknown it doesn't matter what what we know individually we both have an infinite amount that's still unknown to us so what's unknown is really the same to us it's very interesting all right so he says um furthermore what is known is always known conditionally since human knowledge is necessarily limited um and so this is interesting what what it reminds me of is the yin and the yang that we talked about on the Taoist episode. It's like the unknown exists even within the known. You know. And that you can imagine that yin-yang symbol with the white half uh, and that little black dot inside the white half, or the black half with the little white dot inside of it, that on both sides of the coin, the chaos and the order side, the known and the unknown side. In both examples, there's a little bit of the known and the unknown, and a little bit of the uh unknown and the known uh that um that this is a, an interesting way of looking at it that that the known is is necessarily limited but even even so you can learn something new even even with the things that are already known and predictable to you and you might just think uh you might just think of you know when we invented the you know the microscope or something it's like we knew about our bodies we knew about that. For, for a long time, we knew lots and lots about our bodies. But until we invented the microscope and took a sliver of our skin un, under, the, under the lights and magnification and saw the cells that were there and the organelles inside those cells, there's a whole little world going on inside of our bodies that we have completely unaware of, that even that, that discovery of something unknown in something that's already very well known, you know, science at that point knew about how the body worked in great detail. And we're all human beings existing within our bodies. We know that our bodies better than almost anything, but had no idea that we were made up of these cells that were sort of alive all by themselves. Um, what we learned, we invent the microscope, and suddenly we discover this unknown sitting, you know, within the known, just like that little white dot on the black half of the yin and yang. This is what I mean here. And he goes on to say... Our conditional knowledge consists of our models of the emotional significance of the present, defined in opposition to an idealized, hypothetical, or fantasized future. He says we act to transform where we are into where we would like to be. When our behaviors produce results that we did not want, then we move into the domain of the unknown, where more primordial emotional forces rule. So this is interesting. Um, he's saying that we act, and when we act, we, we act to transform where we are into where we would like to be. I think that's self-explanatory, but but I think it, it doesn't go without saying. P- people don't realize enough that we don't have a choice but to act in the world. We're, we're conscious creatures. That's what we're doing. We're going around making decisions and, and acting in the world. Um, but people don't give enough thought to the idea that those actions are... Always necessarily always 100% of the time designed to move us into a direction that we want to move or you might even say to create a future that's more desirable than the present um, so our actions are actually doing that to creating the future in some way. And it is a little bit of a tug of war against all the other people that are doing the same thing in the world, all the other conscious creatures out there trying to get their, their way, trying to do the things that they want to do and bring about the future that they would like to see. And we're all sort of, you know, tugging against one another, trying to come up with a balance there. Um, you, and, you know, that maybe that's the sort of development of culture, let's say. Um and then and then again he says when our behaviors don't produce the the results we want you know that's when we're finding ourselves in the domain of the unknown and he says that there is where primordial emotional forces rule and i think that's interesting because because earlier he talked about um that that as an instinct that our response to the unknown is kind of built into us it's in, it's an instinct of some kind and he's saying that 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 its primordial emotional forces are in that domain, uh, that makes perfect sense. You know, Instincts are the things that have kept us alive. They're the things that we've carried with us since before we were human beings, the things that we relied on to survive and, and move on into the future. So, of course, those are the areas where primordial emotional forces rule. Those are the parts of our brains that were functioning before we were conscious in the way we are today, when we were, you know... When we were lizards, you might say that those things were still present in our minds, those instinctual forces, um, and uh, and even then we had to deal with the unknown. Even when we were, you know, pre-human, pre-mammalian, you know, species uh, crawling around the forests of the primordial Earth, even then we had encounters with the unknown that we had to deal with, and so so the responses to that were built in as instincts. All right. Uh, the domain of the known and the domain of the unknown can reasonably be regarded as permanent constituent elements of human experience, even of the human environment. Now, this is really important. So he's saying that the known and the unknown—that these are things that are uniform to everybody. They're the components of every human being's experience. You know, part of the world is known, and part of the world is unknown. This is true for all of us. So he's saying that's a permanent element Of human experience I think that goes without saying No argument there He says even of the human environment So the, so the known and the unknown These things that exist in my psyche you know, In my internal world um, they, you know, they correspond to the external world But they really exist in my mind And he's saying that that is part of the human environment Which is important because It's our environment to which we are adapted So we evolve to adapt to our environment. So this is where he's going with this. So what he's saying here is that these mythological characters that exist in our internal world, in our minds, um, that those things are, are what we're adapted to biologically. That we evolved to deal with those mythological characters. What does that mean? Here we go. "...regardless of culture, place, and time, human individuals are forced to adapt to the fact of culture, the domain of the known, and the fact of its ultimate insufficiency, as the domain of the unknown, necessarily remains, regardless of previous adaptation." So he's saying here that, you know, uh, we encounter the unknown and we adapt to that, but that, that, that the transformation that's happening all around us, that it never stops. So the need to adapt never stops. And so that this is fundamental, this is something that's absolutely fundamental to how we exist, um, you know, biologically and psychologically. That there's this constantly changing environment that we have to always adapt to, and and that job is never done. So the creating more of this domain of the known, uh, that that is a job that's never done. That You might even say that that's the answer to kind of what is the meaning of life. It's that constant pursuit to pull more of the known out of the unknown. That you, There's no end to it. As Jordan would say, there's no bottom to it. All right, so the human brain, let's talk about that. The human brain, and Jordan says, and also higher animal brains, appear therefore to have adapted itself to the external presence of these two quote-unquote places. The, he's talking about the domain of the known and the domain of the unknown. He says, the brain has one mode of operation when in explored territory and another when in unexplored territory. So we talked about this on the uh, podcast, about a podcast episode where Jordan interviewed that, that uh, Ian McGilchrist character. And uh, they were talking all about this, the left brain and the right brain and how the how the left brain is adapted to um, to see individual things in a great amount of detail to figure out exactly what they are but that the left brain doesn't have a big picture. It's it's isolated. It only sees one thing at a time. It never sees the big picture. So that's what the right brain is for. It's to go in and see how everything works together. So you have uh, you have a right brain that's responsible for this narrative, this mythological narrative that we're talking about. But it's also responsible for creating a cohesive picture of the world. like We wouldn't have uh, context and and connections about objects and and events in the world. No cause and effect, no time, no no space. None of that would exist without the right brain. So that, again, going back to Jordan, that the left brain, the left hemisphere and the right hemisphere of the brain, um, that they are asymmetrical, that they aren't identical, that they grew and evolved to do different things. And what those things are... Again, left brain and right brain are adaptations to the world of the unknown and the world of the known, and these are those mythological characters that were adapted to. Even our brains, he's saying, have grown as adaptive um, uh, function of of the the reality of this mythological reality. I mean, I'm, I'm unbelievable that this world that exists, this subjective world that exists in our psyche, in our mind, that that. That not only are we adapted to this, but to such a degree that our brains, and not just the brains of humans, but all higher, higher animals, um, that they're structured with this bifurcation, as Jordan would say, this split between left and right that are designed to do different things so that when you take them together, uh, you're actually seeing something more like what the world really is. Not just the known, not just the unknown, but a synthesis of the two. Whew. Not sure what that means, but let's see if Jordan can give us some more. He says, creative exploration of the unknown and consequent generation of knowledge is construction or, or update of patterns of representation such that the unknown is transformed from something terrifying and compelling into something beneficial or at least something irrelevant. So again, this is just him saying that that... that encounter with the unknown that kind of creates fear and curiosity that when we when we allow our curiosity to pull us in you know that was something we were talking about personal interest in the the last episode this is right up that right up that same alley that that there's this process of creative exploration that you're you're searching through this unknown you're observing it you're playing around with it you're trying to learn from it and that this process of Pulling information from it Learning from it Is, is a creative process And a, genera- a generative process It's something that generates knowledge Because uh, of course we're learning about this new thing But it also kind of populates the world And that's a hard to explain But it's like The things that we know um, They kind of color the world So I'm trying to think of an example on the spot Which is not easy to do But um, you might think like oh, I, This is a tried and true example um, when you, when you're going through puberty, let's say, so like, you know, up until like the age of 11 or 12, let's say the world is, you know, you've kind of mastered the world as a child you've understood all the things you have to understand to navigate the world and to keep yourself safe and, you know, avoid pain and, and is, you know, issues that you've dealt with for the first, you know, so many years of your life, you've, you've kind of, you've kind of, uh, formed a great deal of known out of the unknown at this point, And you're living in this childlike bubble of knowledge and then puberty hits and suddenly things have meaning that they didn't used to have you know people of the opposite sex let's say um you know whatever it is all of these things that that circle our sexuality that all of a sudden these have meanings that that didn't exist before they just sort of start seeping out of things that you thought you knew but but you didn't and now you know them differently um so this this generation of knowledge that way it actually does change your experience of the world because because now the you know the the girl next door that you were friends with let's say is not is not just what she was before but she's something more she's something else and so your world has changed in response to this new information and the the girl next door is no longer just the girl next door but she's something more than that uh and again that's again this is changing something that exists in the world already that you knew already and suddenly you realize you didn't know there's more to it than that and this is the generative part of 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 creating knowledge of exploring the unknown that i'm talking about it's not just giving you information it's also sort of populating your world with new and more detailed things that you that you know what i mean it's there's something else going on there um and again he says it you know transforms the unknown from something terrifying and compelling to maybe something beneficial So you get over the fear, you explore, you you, you pull information from this unknown experience. And, you know, fingers crossed that information is beneficial um, uh, to you or or maybe irrelevant so that you can stop, you know, stop worrying about it, stop thinking about it. All right, he says the presence of capacity for such creative exploration and knowledge generation may be regarded as the third and final permanent constituent element of human experience so again we're talking about the known and the unknown now he's bringing in something that he called um, mythologically he called the divine son or the hero like the jesus archetype you might say the savior archetype that this is the third character and it's something we'll call the known Um, so you've got the 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 unknown you've got the known and you've got the excuse me the knower so the divine the divine son is the knower and then now we're going to get into this mythological landscape. He says, Mythological representations of the world portray the dynamic interrelationship between all three constituent elements of human experience. The eternal unknown, and he describes this as nature, metaphorically speaking, creative and destructive, source and destination of all determinate things, in generally... In generally excuse me, is generally ascribed as effectively ambivalent feminine character. So um, conceptualized as the mother um, and the devourer, eventual devourer of everything and everyone. So again, I I want to, for a second, when we're talking about the eternal unknown or just the unknown or chaos, whatever word you want to use, this is not something that uh, has any connections to gender? Uh, whenever we use the word feminine or masculine, I feel like I have to step in and say this because uh, because there's just a lot of misinformation about that in the world today. That uh, that gender uh, has nothing to do with what we're talking about here, and ascribing a vagina to the word feminine is not necessarily. And come on, man, the liberals of 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 anybody should should agree with this sentiment that a vagina has nothing to do with this idea of feminine. You know, if you if you can believe that gender is fluid and all that sort of thing, then you have to also admit that, that feminine is a character or a quality. It does not. It's not tied to your sexual organs. Okay, so I say that just to explain this again. That the unknown is something that we can call Mother Nature. It's the thing out there that everything comes from, and when they die, everything goes back to. It's it's the the source and structure of of material being. Uh, this is how he's describing it. It's nature. It's the creative and destructive force. It's the source and destination of all things. He says it's something that that is typically uh, is typically seen as the feminine character, the feminine. This like when we talked about the yin and the yang, that the feminine and the masculine, you can say are these two halves. The same way that we can look at the yin and the yang um, that constitute all of our subjective experience. It's the things that we experience are either feminine, masculine, or some combination of that, and it has nothing to do with, with your sex organs. All right. So now we're going to talk about the eternal known in contrast. So now we talked about the unknown, uh, chaos, the creative and destructive force, Mother Nature. Now we're talking about the known, and he says in contrast, this is culture. It's defined territory. It's tyrannical and protective, um, predictable, disciplined, and restrictive. It's the cumulative consequence of heroic or exploratory behavior. It's typically considered masculine, so in, in contradistinction to the mother, he says. So again, the unknown is the feminine, creative, destructive force. The known, he, he says, is and now, I want to I want to circle back that when we're talking about the unknown and we say that it's the feminine, creative, and destructive force, you have to understand that creative and destructive are opposites here. So you have a good quality. Or you might say, and that's, you know, just again, maybe a human bias, but we think of creativity as, or or things being created as good, and things being destroyed as bad. So you've got this good version of the, the, the feminine, the unknown, and you've got the bad version, the creative and the destructive. Same thing here with the known. He's going to call it culture in, co- in contrast to the unknown as nature. So, nature versus culture, very, very clear. He's saying that it's defined territory. He calls it tyrannical and protective. So, this is, again, the good and the bad side of order. So, known as again, order, just like the unknown is chaos. And in this example, he's saying that it's tyrannical and protective. So, there's a type of order that imposes on you. You know, you can imagine like a... To, uh, totalitarian government or something like there's a type of order that's tyrannical and, and oppresses you but there's also a type of order or, or a function of order that's protective it's our culture it's our it's our borders it's our government it's you know it's it's all of the things that protect us from the unknown So again he's saying here that the known is both tyrannical and protective and I just need to say that this is the masculine with a good and a bad Character, just like the unknown, is the feminine with a good and a bad character. That makes sense. Both are important because the unknown is not complete without both sides of the coin. The unknown is not complete without both sides of the coin. And then lastly, the eternal knower. He says the eternal knower, finally, the process that mediates between the known and the unknown, it is the knight who slays the dragon of chaos the hero who replaces disorder and confusion with clarity and certainty. He's the sun god who eternally slays the forces of darkness and the word that engenders cosmic creation. by the word there, he's referring to the biblical logos, this idea of, you know, the idea that I think of is pretty straightforwardly describing consciousness. But, uh, But the Bible uses the word word. So this is interesting. So the knower is the hero the hero who slays the dragon of chaos. So from all those mythological stories of the hero, all those superhero movies, you know, all of those sorts of things, uh, Beowulf and and all of them, that that the knower is the person that goes out into chaos voluntarily, who puts himself at risk and in danger, who goes out there and faces whatever that unknown is and brings back something valuable, something that restores order to the people. Um, and that same story, he says, is told as the sun god who eternally slays the forces of darkness. This is the way that primitive people have thought of the the, the dawn and the dusk process. That the, every day the sun rises and and uh, uh, and 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 forces back the darkness and brings it once again uh, light to the world and and to the to the delight of all the people. That this is a st- the same story that you hear mythologically is the same thing that we talk about. Individually, as you and I, when we have an experience of the unknown, when I walk into the, to the you know, bedroom and see my wife cheating, let's say, that I have that encounter with the unknown, then what I, what I have an opportunity to, to kind of follow the hero's journey, to take this encounter with the unknown as something that is an opportunity for me to bring something valuable from, I'm going to learn from that one way or the other. Well, I'm going to learn from that experience one way or the other. All right. Um, okay, so then he, he goes on to say, We tell ourselves stories about who we are, where we would like to be, and, and how we're going to get there. These stories regulate our emotions by determining the significance of all the things we encounter and all the events we experience. So we evaluate them based on whether they help or harm or are neutral, let's say, to our goals, to, to bringing out about that desired future, whatever that is that we think is, is meaningful that we want to bring about. The things that we want, and it's interesting that he says that the, those stories that we tell they they regulate our emotions. And since we're talking about this infidelity example, this is a really maybe a really good example that when you have a situation like that, where you've you've you know stumbled in on this terrible thing, your your spouse of many years who you love and have built this life with, let's say is is uh, cheating on you, and and you know all of that has been destroyed. Um, your emotional state at that time is terrible You're, you're, you're completely absorbed in chaos You know, you, you're, all of the emotions you're feeling are, are bad emotions Anger, fear, desperation, jealousy All of those things, terrible feelings All of us, you know, hate them We don't, we don't like feeling that way That these are the things that, the, uh, that this event is, are bringing about emotionally So our instincts are responding And they're speaking to us in these emotions And they're all negative They're all negative so we're getting flooded by that um and it's putting our putting our bodies in this state where we can like it's a fight or flight situation where where we can act or react because we're we're staring into the unknown um and so what what he says here about our stories allow us to regulate our emotions is that in order for someone to get over this situation that I just described where you've seen your your spouse cheating on you you You've lost all the context of your life. All the things you thought about the story of your life, you know, have been undermined. Um, You know, that you don't have this loving spouse that you thought. You don't have this person that you grew up with that... uh, that shares your your you know stories and, and uh, references and and you know values you greatly and somebody you think of as yourself that all that stuff that support that you have and the history and the memories and all that stuff you thought was good and you had in a particular context well that's all it's all false now you have to figure out a new context to make it make sense to you because your whole world doesn't make sense anymore so so we rewrite the story so that's what we do we say I can't take all of this negative emotion. So what I'm going to do now is rewrite the story. I'm going to reframe this as as a necessary growing experience that I had to suffer through this emotional, you know, experience so that I could grow from it, so that I can mature, so that I could, you know, go to the next state of my psychological development. Now I'm a stronger person. Now I know I can can, uh, survive that sort of thing, uh, that I'm greater than, um, you know, greater than this terrible event that's occurred to me. So that you rewrite the story and once you've done that then the emotions change once you've done that you're not feeling anger and jealousy and resentment and all that stuff anymore now now suddenly those emotions start to become positive because you've rewritten the story so now yeah I've suffered this terrible thing and it was hard and painful but it was necessary now it's this building block that I can step on and up to the next place and so the emotions surrounding that are very different. And then what happens when you, when you do meet that other special somebody and you realize there's more to romantic relationships than what you had before, or maybe what you thought was possible before, and now you're in this much better position. You've learned, uh, you know, that this new experience is possible. Um, all of those things, you know what I mean? So we rewrite our stories, and this is very important, that that helps to regulate our emotions, and I, it, can't be, it can't be overstated that our emotions are what the quality of our life, uh, it, you know, that's the lever that changes the quality of our experience or the quality of our life. If I'm walking around and the things that I'm doing are producing positive emotions, I'm a happy man. If I'm walking around and the things I'm doing are creating nothing but negative emotions, I'm living in hell. And if I can change which way I'm experiencing the world just by changing the story I'm telling about my life? That's something we should know. That's hugely, hugely important. And that's exactly what Jordan believes, so let's get into that. All right, I want to talk a little bit more about this whole idea of evolution adapting us to these mythological realities of the known and the unknown. Um, and Jordan, he, he gets some, some evidence for it uh, that it's really interesting, so we'll talk about that now. He, he says, a compelling body of evidence suggests that our affective, remember he, he means emotions by that, our, our affective cognitive and behavioral responses to the unknown are hardwired, suggests that these responses constitute inborn structural elements of the processes of consciousness itself. He says we attend involuntarily to those things that occur contrary to our predictions. That the involuntary attention comprises a large part of what we refer to when we say consciousness. Woo! All right, guys. So what he's saying here is, what he's saying here is that the way we respond to the unknown, when we encounter something that we've never encountered before, that that is is hardwired into us. That it's built in. He says, inborn. It's something that we're born with, and he says it's part of the structure. Of consciousness, whatever that is, that you cannot separate those two things. So, whatever consciousness is, it's something that has this characteristic that it, that we're hardwired to respond to the unknown. He says that we ent- attend to the unknown involuntarily, and this is what he means: like we we encounter the unknown, and our consciousness gets gets sucked into it. So, whatever we are experiencing that we didn't expect or that we haven't ever experienced before. Our consciousness gets drawn to that and focuses on it. And that's completely out of our control. It happens automatically. Um, And he's saying that that's basically what we mean when we say consciousness. That when you're conscious of something, it's something that you're aware of, that, that that your body has brought to your attention, right? It's like somehow something is now the object of my mind and my thoughts. That's what my attention is. And it's hard to make a distinction between that and consciousness, because that's what you're conscious of. So this is really interesting. Uh, and, it, and it reminds me of the idea that we talked about earlier uh, in the last, uh, uh, the, the, the prior version of this, the uh, last episode of the Maps of Meaning podcast, was uh, the idea of, of interests. That you have these interests or, or even ideas that dawn on you or occur to you. It's like these things seem to call to you. And it's not clear where they're calling from. Um, or what that calling is. And the idea is that an idea might just dawn on you or um, you know, strike you as super interesting or important uh, and, or, or something draws your attention, something seems interesting to you, that you don't have control over that. You can't choose what you're interested in, that those things happen to you like you've just been struck by lightning. Um, and that's what Jordan means when he says that these things are, seem to be calling to you. All right, so now, so now he's going to describe this guy that we talked about before, one of his um, biggest influences, a guy named E.N. Sokolov. Uh, and then He was a, a behavioral uh, researcher in, in Russia, uh, and, he, and he studied um, uh, behavior, behavior and instincts. And this is what he says. He says, consider the nervous system as a mechanism which models the external world by specific changes that occur in its internal structure. So the nervous system, this is... You might say consciousness, but really, no, this is the brain and, the, and the, the spinal cord and the system of nerves that goes across your body that all of the chemical and electrical signals are, are passing through to communicate, you know, all the things that your body has to know. Uh, that's what your nervous system is. Um, but consciousness is, seems to be connected to that heavily because our brains, you know, if they're damaged or if our nervous system is damaged, consciousness is damaged and potentially can be, you know, can be destroyed. So he says that uh, the nervous system is a mechanism that models the external world and then just pays attention for changes, pays attention to things that don't match up to the model. He goes on, he says, in this sense, a distinct set of changes in the nervous system is isomorphic with the external agent that it reflects and resembles. Uh, And I had to look up isomorphic, so I'll tell you. um, It means something like it matches it, so it, it, it it, when he says that the nervous system changes, it reorganizes itself to match the external world. So I'll read it again. He says, in this sense, a distinct set of changes in the nervous system is isomorphic with the external agent that it reflects and resembles. So the nervous system models the world that it's observing or experiencing, let's say. And then any change that it, it, it encounters, any unexpected thing, any you might say the unknown... That when that happens, it just changes to match the new pattern. Okay, so it says, uh, or Sokolov says, as an internal model that develops in the nervous system in response to agents in the environment, that the image performs the vital function of modifying the nature of behavior, allowing the organism to predict events and actively adjust to its environment. So the nervous system models out, uh, however it does that, it models out the environment out there and then if it encounters anything that's different from the model it just updates the model and that triggers your biology to adapt so your nervous system kind of alerts you to the fact that there's been a change in the model that it that it, there's something anomalous and that that pr- prompts you biologically to adapt or prepare for change so it seems to be saying that the nervous system d- detects anomaly by constantly comparing our existing you know psychic projection of the world um, you know our represent our representation of the world um, to to the one that it's constantly refreshing or updating that our nervous system is constantly mapping the world and our expectations and letting us know if there's any differences when when differences are detected when the unknown is detected it it just transforms to match that new information that's i, I mean that's interesting i I never knew that that's what was going on behind you know, the scenes and the nuts and bolts of your brain and, and nervous system. But that's it. It's, it's modeling it's modeling uh, the world and alerting you to any, to any changes in that model. So Sokolov goes on to say, I characterize these reactions as orienting reflexes. The, pe- the peculiar feature of the orienting reflex is that after several applications of the same stimulus the response disappears. However, the slightest possible change in the stimulus is sufficient to reawaken the response. Research on the orienting reflex indicates that it does not occur as a direct result of incoming excitation. Rather, it is produced by signals of discrepancy, which develop when incoming signals are compared with the trace formed in the nervous system by an earlier signal. Wow. Wow. Wow so so again he's saying that we have these orienting reflexes that that they are reflexes they are instinctual, they're built in at the most primitive level that we don't have any conscious awareness of them. they're things that are just happening behind the scenes. In fact, they're happening so deep down in our biology that they're like one of these they instincts they're what they're one of these things that, that 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 we can trace back in our the development of our psyches and brains basically all the way back to the beginning of time. Um, That these orienting reflexes have always been there and that they're designed to allow us to learn, allow us to adapt to the unknown. Really, they allow us to build the world that we're going to exist in. So, you you know, you might... Imagine a toddler, let's say, or even a newborn, uh, all the way up through, you know, the toddler age, encountering the world in all these ways for the first time and fit learning and figuring out more and more that what's happening to them is that they are literally building in their minds, in their psyches, the structure that they need to project the world that you and I experience. That when they're young, they don't, they don't have any of that stuff yet. They don't have any of that stuff built up. So they can't they can't see or experience the world the way that we can by a long shot uh It's just like that example I talked about about opening up the back of a computer and staring down at the circuit board and the and the uh wires. It's like you know I can see that, and a baby can see the world I mean maybe not as well as as we can, but they can it just means nothing that their experience with the world little by little you know it starts off with little grasping motions and suckling and you know t- t- taste and sight as it develops and all these things that little by little that's that's building the world in their minds that they're going to encounter when they're able to it's it's populating the world they're in their subjective world with the objects and experiences and the cause and effect and the space and time and all the things that we take for granted that's what it's building. That's what the orienting reflexes are building in in that in that child's psyche. Something like that. So it's it's I mean, we can't overstate the importance of this idea that that these orienting reflexes exist. And then he says that um, that again they're just modeling is your nervous system is just modeling changes, so it's alerting you to any anomalies or any unknown. And it says that you know the orienting reflexes will stop once. The territory has been mapped, you know, once the unknown has become the known. But if you make any changes, even the slightest change that those instincts turn back on in your brain and you have the same pattern of response, you have that fear and curiosity response that happens, that, that drives you to explore the, 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 the new thing that those are all instinctive, that they're built into us at the deepest, deepest level. All right, so back to Jordan. He says, We must model meaning in order to survive. Our our most fundamental maps of meaning, maps which have a narrative structure, portray the motivational value of our current state, conceived of in contrast to a hypothetical ideal, accompanied by plans of action, which are our pragmatic notions of how to get what we want. Getting to point B presupposes that you are at point A. The fact that point B constitutes the end goal means that it is valenced more highly than point A. If you remember, valenced means valued, so that it's valued more highly than point A. It is the perceived improvement of point B that makes the whole map meaningful. And that's a, obviously a, a call out to the title of the book, Maps of Meaning. Um, he says, It is the capacity to construct hypothetical endpoints that makes human beings capable of using their cognitive systems to modulate their effective reactions or emotional reactions. So again... Uh, This is again, this what this is saying here is talking about that rewriting of our story that I told you about. So, if we come in contact with the unknown, um, that we have to rewrite our stories, and that that allows us to change how we respond emotionally to the events going on in in our lives. Um, So, it really controlling the quality of our life by controlling our emotions. And he's saying that we can do that by rewriting the story. And what he's in the example he's using here is just saying, look all the actions that you're that you're taking in your life are at least hypothetically designed to get you the things you want. So you're at point A, you want to get to point B. Point B is more valuable than point A or you wouldn't be trying to get there. And the map that you use to get from point A to point B, as long as it's successful, that, that, that that's what that's what makes the map meaningful. You might say that that you know that that's where the meaning comes from. And he goes on to say that our capacity to construct Hypothetical endpoints that our ability to select what point B is, every single one of us can do that. In fact, only we can do that. We select what our end game is. What is our ideal future? What is the thing that I'm trying to move towards or bring into reality for myself? What is point B? I get to decide that. And I'm the one that gets to, that gets to d- decide why. It's, it's, that's where I, where I see value. I think point B is better, whatever that might be. Different for you and for me and for everybody. But the fact that I can choose what my point B is means that I can control the story I'm telling. And if I can control the story I'm telling, then I can control my emotions. And if I can control my emotions, then I can control my experience of the world. Now, now Jordan says this. He says exactly this. Um, I can't help... But go a step further and, and acknowledge that if we can control, he says modulate our effective reactions, and he, he just means our emotional reactions. If I, can, if I can control how I react emotionally to the world around me just by changing what my point B is, what my end goal is, that, that I can control the experience I'm having. I mean, it's clear to me that I'm doing that with my consciousness. It's it's something that point B is something that I'm constructing in my mind. In my it's uh, something I'm fan, I'm fantasizing about. Let's say, so there's some some connection here, critical connection between my consciousness and and the way I experience the world. And what Jordan is saying is that I can control that. I have every ounce of control over how I experience the world, whether it's good or bad. Uh, you know how I respond to it, how I react to it. Simply by changing or modifying the story I'm telling, rewriting the story, or changing my point B if I have to. Whatever the ideal future is for me, whatever my goal is, and you can think about that in your life. I mean, there's been times in my life where I've had to change that goal, and that goal has been strong and overarching, like... um you know, like I, I wanted to be a college professor. I wanted to teach. Um, doing this podcast obviously is is kind of an outlet for that. It sort of feels that way. But there was a time in my life, maybe around 27 or 28, when I had gone sufficiently far down a particular career um, path and made all these decisions about education and I'd completed my education and all this sort of thing, that the idea of going back to school or doing what I had to do to become a professor, it was no longer... It was no longer viable because my life had changed, my circumstances had changed, and I had this, boy, man, you might, you might call it like a, like a small death, like a small psychological death where I, I finally had to give up that goal, that point B, and I selected a new point B. And that had to do with you know being a father and of being a family man and taking care of business and doing what I have to do and uh, and and all- allowing myself to do those things that I really wanted to do and I was passionate about just making time for that as well. Don't 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 let that go away. That this was my new plan, and as soon as I had that new point B, that all of that like guilt and um, feelings of failure and uh, stuff that I had surrounding not not go, going after that goal that I had had since I was 16, let's say, you know, so a decade or more of having this one overarching goal, that all of those negative emotions surrounding that, they, they went away. As soon as I had this new point B and I was committed to it, then my emotions about giving up that opportunity, the, all those terrible emotions that felt like a, felt like a lifetime of, of work down the drain, that that went away. And this is what Jordan is telling you. Pay attention if you pay attention to, to to the assumptions you're making and the goals that you have, um, that 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 pay, if you pay attention, you notice how it makes you feel. That you can actually change how it makes you feel, and that you're, the satisfaction that you feel in life, just simply by re- rewriting your story. Interesting. All right, let's continue. He says the universe is composed of order and chaos at least from a metaphorical perspective. Oddly enough, however, it is to this metaphorical universe that our nervous system appears to have adapted. And this is what I was talking about earlier. He's saying here in this context that this orienting reflex that he's talking about, that Ian Sokolov discovered, that's something that we can recognize in, in life forms, you know, way less complex than us. I mean, goes way, way back in time, you know, to basically nearly the beginning. Um, and he says that that this idea of uh, the unknown and, and the known, this idea that that we are these creatures that sort of surf along the line between the unknown and the known, and can and can disrupt the balance, can bring more known into you know out of the unknown. That that this thing that we're doing, um, that that our bodies and minds adapted, that they evolved to adapt to that, to that this mythological landscape, this narrative landscape with these characters, uh, he, which now he's calling order and chaos rather than unknown and known. Um, but, you know, we'll use both of those. The more we get into talking about myth, the more we're going to start using order and chaos. Um, while we're talking still mostly about psychology, it'll be more about the, un, the unknown and the known. But as time moves on, we'll kind of get, get rid of the unknown and the known. We'll, we'll focus more on the order and chaos uh, language. It just fits a little bit better with the, myth- the the mythological stuff. All right, so he says what Sokolov discovered is that human beings and other and other animals far down the phylogenetic chain are characterized by an innate response to what they cannot predict and cannot understand. So this is something that goes deep, deep well, well beyond you know the time when human beings uh, came came to, into existence. It goes way way down the chain, uh, and that it's innate. It's like an instinct he says the notion that we respond in an instinctually patterned manner to the appearance of the unknown has profound implications so i'll pull that apart a little when he says that the notion that we respond in an instinctively patterned manner to the unknown he's just saying that he's saying that that everybody responds in approximately the same way to the unknown so he's calling that a pattern and it's interesting that that the pattern is there because whenever you see a pattern, there's typically a reason for that. So he's saying that there is a a certain way in which people react to the unknown, and it's kind of it's more or less the same for everybody. It's that fear and curiosity thing that happens when we encounter something that's that's uh, that's unpredictable. He says it has profound implications, and those implications are are that the unknown. Serves as what Sokolov calls an unconditioned stimulus. That it's not it's not learned. It's not like the Pavlov's dog thing, where you where you uh, uh, turn on the light or something and give the dog a shock at the same time. And then all you have to do after a, after a couple of times is turn the light on, and the dog will become afraid because it's anticipating the pain that it associates with the light coming on. That that's what a conditioned stimulus is. He's saying that the orient and reflex orienting reflex is not conditioned at all. It's not learned at all. It's unconditioned. It's this thing that we do that we don't have to learn to do. What is that? What kind of mystery is that? That That is is exactly the point. All right, I'm going to have to paraphrase this, this story here, and I'll do it a couple times, um, but this is just kind of a kind of a hypothetical story that explains an encounter with chaos, an encounter with the unknown. We did that a little bit in the beginning. Those were just some some stories that I threw together to illustrate, but Jordan did that in the book, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use his example, uh, but I'll paraphrase. Alright, so Jordan tells a story about a, a corporate a businessman. He's trying to make a meeting on time, but he's running into all kinds of unexpected difficulties. Um, he describes how the missing elevator and the pedestrians that he's has to skirt around on the street that they're all viewed to him as obstacles because he's trying to get to the meeting. So that the fact the elevator didn't show up and the people that are in front of him on the street, he looks at them all as obstacles. And his emotions towards them are super negative, right? The the goddamn elevator, where is the elevator? That you know, the, these 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 assholes in my way. These person's walking slow. The light the light turned green. Come on, go go. That that sort of reaction that all of the emotion he has towards these things are negative because he sees them as obstacles. Okay? So he um, he then points out uh, that had you allowed more time uh, to point, uh, Jordan then points out that if he had allowed more time to, for the businessman to get to the meeting, if he just allowed himself more time, that these same objects, the elevator and the people, that he wouldn't, he wouldn't be seeing them as obstacles. He wouldn't be Pulling his hair out and yelling at the top of his lungs at, at at these people in his way, so so he says it's your plan of action and the ability to adapt to the unknown that determines your emotional state or de- determines how the world seems to you, how the things going on around you are are seen, are they good or they bad? So this is basically going back to what I said about your point B. Um, he, he he's saying here that. Because his goal was to get to this meeting on time, that everything that was happening to him, the elevator not being there, the people in his way, all that stuff, that all that stuff is seen as bad and gives him all these negative emotions that puts him in a tizzy, it makes him feel mixed up and, and frustrated and, you know, bad. So it's the, the fact that his goal was to get there on time that made his experience bad, negative, negative. If he had given himself twice as much time, he, maybe he would have been strolling through the park, whistling, listening to the birds singing. Uh, the people that, he, that were, were in his way wouldn't, wouldn't even be seen as in his way. He just walks around them. It's the goal and the ability to adapt that that controls your emotion. It controls your experience. It controls the way that you encounter the world. What could be more important to know than that? That you can control your emotional state or the way you experience the world, just by paying attention and figuring out how to adapt and making sure that your point B, that your goals are, are not causing you, you know, pain. All right. In the absence of expected satisfaction, that is punishing, hurtful, the emotion is generated as a default response. It is the man expecting the raise who is hurt when someone less deserving is promoted before him. Conversely, the child who has not completed her homework is thrilled when the bell rings before she is called upon. The bell signals the absence of an expected punishment and therefore induces happiness. The motivational significance of ongoing events is clearly determined by the nature of the goal towards which behavior is devoted. And then he he adds that the goal is conceptualized in fantasy and i and i have to say that means in your internal world that means in your head that means it exists in consciousness the motivational significance of ongoing events this is he's just saying you know the 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 way that you take the things happening around you the emotions that are being spurred by the events going on in your life things going on around you that all of that is controlled by the nature of the goal toward which your behavior is devoted and all that stuff is done in your brain, in your mind. So if anybody has control over that, it's you. All right, so Jordan also says that, that trauma undermines our ability to believe that our conceptions of the present are valid and that our goals are appropriate. So just imagine the situation, again, about walking in on your spouse cheating on you. That, that would constitute trauma. And that would definitely undermine your ability to believe that your conceptions about the present are valid, and that your goals are appropriate, because the present is not what you thought it was. Your wife is not who she thought, uh, who you thought she was, and you perhaps aren't aren't who you thought you were, to have found yourself unexpectedly in this situation. So he goes on to say, such occurrences disturb our belief in our ends, and not infrequently in our starting points. And so this is basic basically him saying that there are times when you sort of have to rewrite your story. There are times when you don't really have a choice. And he says in instances like this, he says, such occurrences disturb our belief in our ends. So, you know, whatever I was doing wasn't getting me the goal I wanted because even even my wife, who I thought was, you know, a faithful and permanent part of my existence is not. So, whatever you were doing to get to get your desired futures, you know, not doing the trick exactly. And also that it disturbs our starting points. And what he's saying here is it sort of rewrites the story of who you thought you were. So even even your starting points, you know, even the story of your relationship, you know, that's a different story now. You know, the story that you tell yourself that got you to the point where you were in this, you know, quote-unquote loving, happy marriage, that story has to change, you know. Um, and people who don't change their story in situations like this, people who don't change their map um, they end up living in hell all right he says we compare what we have to what we want the desired world we've created in our imagination that's what we want rather than to what we merely think will be and that's interesting he's just pointing out here that 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 we compare what the state of, uh, of our existence. We compare that to the state that we want and not to the state that we think is likely to be. So for instance, you know, I, I may have like a certain career goal and I'm always comparing my career path to this goal, even though it's not likely to me that I'm going to get that goal anytime soon. It's like something that I'm going to have to work towards. and It's going to happen in the far, far future. Uh, but I don't I don't compare um like the current state that I'm in now to what I think is reasonably gonna happen next week or next year. I I instead I compare it to that end goal, that lofty goal way off in the distance. Why is that? And I'm not I'm not sure. But Jordan's just pointing out, hey, this is how kind of how we think. Um so just bear in mind that our emotions are are uh, and, and again, when I say emotions at this point, I'm just saying like how satisfied I am with the state of my existence. Let's say that uh, that that's tied to my to to the emotions that I'm feeling based upon the things happening around me. And I'm and I'm those emotions that that I'm comparing to that that, that are coming from this comparison. That, uh, I might say that that's not a comparison to what I think is likely to happen it's a comparison to this lofty go out in the distance so, so there's a lot more room for negative emotion there because my goal is is you know so lofty um and i it's just a, it's just an interesting thing and i don't know if jordan is saying here that maybe if you're experiencing like a whole bunch of negative emotions that maybe you need to lower the bar you need to make your goal a little bit more reachable or something maybe that's maybe that's the case um but i think here he's just pointing pointing out the fact that some of the reason we have all this negative emotion is that we tend Uh, We tend not to compare ourselves today to where we think we'll be tomorrow, but where we want to be ideally. And that's just a fact. All right, so let's go back to the story of the businessman. uh, And I'll paraphrase this again. We're going to go back to the story of the businessman who was late for the meeting. So he uh, returns to the office after the meeting. Um, He's expecting praise from his boss because he, he was really active during the meeting and he had sorts of ideas and things and he thought he was contributing. But instead, he gets called into his boss's office, and he gets fired. And there's a whole litany of legitimate concerns his boss brings to his attention, concerns that he was somehow unaware of. He was blind to. So, this encounter with the unknown is a little bit worse, you know, than the obstacles he was seeing. Uh, you know, the the elevator being missing and the people in his way on the street. This is a more serious. Um, this is a more serious encounter with the unknown because. In this case, he thought he was going to get promoted and going down this path and this this more kind of he has a lot more time and effort dedicated to uh, you know to this pursuit, and he thinks he's gonna get promoted, and instead he gets fired. So so that maybe that falls into the falls into the category of trauma maybe as well. So Jordan says, You have just been presented with incontrovertible evidence that your characterizations of the present and of the ideal future are seriously flawed. Your presumptions about the nature of the world are an error. The world you know has just crumbled around you. The future has opened up in front of you like a pit, and you have fallen in. Chaos has eaten your soul. This means that your long-term goals have to be reconstructed and the motivational significance of events re-evaluated, literally revalued. Okay, so, you know... Fair enough. So this guy um, is expecting to get promoted, and instead he gets fired, and it says that his presumptions about uh, the world were obviously wrong. Um, the path he thought he was on is uh, was obviously uh, flawed, and whatever this ideal future he thought he was going to have when he got this promotion, that's all gone as well. And he and the way he describes this this encounter with chaos, is that the future has opened up in front of you like a pit. Now I, I love this sentence because there's a for lots of reasons, it's it, it's a very visual sentence. But what the first part of it that says the future has opened up in front of you. Now that that is a very positive statement, and that's how the future seems. You know the maybe not the future, but uh, you might say potential, and the future kind of represents that potential. So when the future is opened up to you, that's usually something that means you have opportunities. You know. And opportunities, I think, uh, fall into this idea of this this unknown. You know, the unknown or chaos is something that's that could be infinitely um, beneficial. It could be a huge potential benefit for you. But it could also be a huge potential um, uh, risk, you might say. And so he says the future has opened up in front of you. Um, you know, that seems positive, the future opening up in front of you. But then he says, like a pit and you've fallen in that, that, re- that, that, represents really well, the, the, the good and the bad nature of the unknown. And we talked about that before as creative and destructive. So here he's saying that the unknown opens up in front, like, like, uh, you know, the future opens up in front of you. Um, and that's obviously the positive, but that's where the opportunities are. And then he says, yeah, it opens up in front of you, but like a pit that you fell into. And there's the risk. There's the, there's the bad side of the unknown. You know, it's got danger and it's got potential. It's got it's got both simultaneously. And then he uses this awesome descriptive sentence that says, chaos has eaten your soul. Um, and that's kind of how it feels if something that traumatic happens to you and, you, you know, the, your story has to be rewritten. That time in which you haven't rewritten it you, and you're just lingering in chaos and you know you've got this hard work that you have to do, you have to rewrite this narrative so that you can you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and move on. Um, but anytime you have a, a, a big job to do, a hard job to do, you know, pe- people procrastinate. We, we, we re- recoil from that type of work and it seems daunting, you know, it seems impossible. And this is what he's describing when he says chaos has eaten your soul. And then basically he says that his goals have, have to now be reconstructed. Um, that the motivational significance of events, he's saying that, that uh, the events around him have to be reevaluated, literally revalued. And remember, in the last uh, Maps of Meaning episode, we were talking about that: that when you make a choice, when you, when you select point B, that you are making a value judgment, you're making a moral judgment by saying that point B is more valuable, it's better than point A. So that's what he says, that, that now this businessman's story has to be rewritten and things have to literally be revalued. Now, I can't help but think that this connects to the rebirth story that we see in mythology. You know, like the Jesus story, for instance, the, the death and the resurrection, or like the phoenix dying and getting reborn from its ashes, that this rebirth um, that we see in mythological stories and in, and in religion that we see it over and over and over again, that that's what that story represents. It represents this this process of rewriting your own story and revaluing the world. That when you encounter chaos, just like your nervous system has to adapt to that change, that that's what you're doing to adapt to it. You rewrite the story, you tweak it, and you revalue what needs to be revalued so that everything makes sense. Everything has to make sense um, in order to... Give yourself the order that you need to overcome the chaos. You know that to overcome the fear that grips you when you encounter the unknown, to move on, to continue to act. Um. And we'll and we'll see that in just a bit when we start talking about uh, uh we're gonna so we're gonna talk about rats and, and, and cats again in a bit. All right. So back to Jordan, he says, "Indeed, our very cultures are erected upon the foundations of a single great story." And here's the story. Paradise, encounter with chaos, fall and redemption. Paradise, encounter with chaos, fall and redemption. He says this is the story of every culture. These are the myths that every culture tells its people. And they paint those stories up in all different kinds of ways. You know, when, you, when we see paradise, you know, we think about the Garden of Eden, let's say, in, in the Western world. Encounter with chaos is the snake in the garden. Uh, the fall, of course, is the, is the original sin and the fall, the, the fall of Adam and Eve, uh, you know, and, and being forced out of the garden. And then redemption, you, you, you might say, is the, is the rest of the story of humanity. It's it, all the way up in, it, from a biblical perspective, all the way up through the birth of Jesus that, who redeems the world. That this is the story we tell in the West But it's also the same story That's told in in every mythological Tradition all across Time all across the world You know the story of Isis and Osiris and Seth Same story The story of the uh of the sun Defeating the, the the darkness You know that that sort of tribal story Same story Uh that the sun has to do battle You know with the darkness and then And then uh prevail. That same story is told with the uh, uh, with the um, phenomenon of uh, eclipses, you know, like the, the snake is swallowing the, the, the moon or the sun, that, that, that's a Native American myth. But the point is, you see this everywhere. This is the pattern, paradise, encounter with chaos, fall, and redemption, that this is the narrative of myth. It's the structure that you see all over the world in myth and religion, but it's also the structure of our lives that over and over and over again, we find ourselves in a stable state, in order. And you might call that paradise. And you might, you might call that the, the place that the, the 11-year-old kid is before he hits puberty, when he's kind of mastered all the things that a child needs to master to make sense of the world. Then his encounter with chaos is the dawning of puberty and all these feelings and emotions and instincts and impulses and chemicals that that, that, never, that they've never experienced before. The fall might be You know the, the, Your struggle with You know Your sexuality With your identity That you have to You have to you have to, Synthesize all these New feelings and thoughts Into your Into your Childlike picture Of the world And once you've done that Then that's your redemption That's your new story That's that uh, That place that you might reach In your teenage years Where you're Where you're really Extending your tentacles And trying to figure out Who you are um, And that Delightful process Um so it's just one another example from a psychological perspective so you can see how these myths are really telling us what we're going to experience in our own lives and not just once but over and over and over again that we're going to we're going to have to follow these patterns that our culture has already mapped out for us so that we have a way through it. All right so Jordan Peterson talks about that fired businessman eventually you know f- figuring out what he did wrong making some improvements Uh, figuring out what his new goals should be and starting to work towards them. And he says that you are a man recovering from a long illness, a man reborn. And that's how it feels. It does feel like you've been reborn uh, from the uh, Christian terminology that you've been born again. So this is something that does happen. And if you you think about your own life, you'll see instances, many instances, where this sort of thing has happened to you. And the reason this is important That we see these stories in myth and religion This is actually the reason it's important that Jordan is saying That these these stories we tell ourselves That we tell our culture um, That we see in our myths and our religions That they're actually telling us our own stories That they're telling us the future Our own future And they're giving us a guide to get through it Alright, let's talk about the brain again So The brain is seemingly adapted to chaos and order, and it constructs the world uh, from both. We we described that a little earlier. And Jordan says this. He says, the brain is actually composed in large part of two subsystems. So here we're we're talking about the right hemisphere and the left hemisphere again. He says, the right hemisphere responds to novelty with caution and rapid hypothesis formation. Draws rapid valence-based metaphorical pictures of novel things. So let me let me re-read that in um, in English. <laughs> so he says that the right hemisphere, when it encounters the unknown, that it very quickly forms hypotheses. It, it forms uh, pictures. He says that they're metaph- metaphysical pictures and metaphorical pictures that are that have. That are based on emotions. He says valence based, but they're based on value or emotion. So when I encounter the unknown, it creates some sort of emotional response. That's that orienting reflex that we already talked about. And that what my right hemisphere is doing is just taking those emotions and creating pictures of what that might be. It's just randomly generating pictures, hypotheses of what that novel thing might be. That's what the right hand side is doing. The left, by contrast, Tends to remain in charge when things are unfolding according to plan. Uh, the left, with its greater capacity for detail, makes such pictures explicit and verbal. So these representations of the unknown, the, the right hemisphere is is you might just think of all these different pictures that the right hemisphere is drawing, trying to understand what these emotions are that that it's getting from the from the unknown. Um, the The left hemisphere is uh, is taking those pictures and turning them into something that are more than pictures that are that are that are, he says explicit and verbal, but something that you understand well enough that you can describe and talk about. Um, and that's and interesting because we did talk about that in the many many of the episodes of the podcast. But one that I did uh, called uh, "What's a Picture Worth," where we we're talking about all these. Images that appear in dreams and in mystic experiences and psychedelic experiences that that's what happens in those as well that you you get you know just like a dream you get an image in the dream and it's a picture and if you think about it more and you let you let yourself do that and explore it that the picture starts to mean More cohesive things. It starts to tell a story. It starts to, things start to leap out of the picture that are meaningful or connected to one another. And so that you can really take those pictures as a starting place and work out actual knowledge and understanding from the picture. This is what he's describing when he says that, you know, the the way the left and the right hemispheres of the brain um, understand the unknown. And he says, thus the exploratory capacity of the brain builds the world of the familiar the the known from the world of the unfamiliar from the unknown so put to put that differently consciousness makes the subjective world okay now um, i i think about this like um if you have you guys ever played civilization it's a uh, Sid Myers or something sid something it's a it's a pc game um i think it was strictly a pc game and I wasn't much of a PC gamer, I was more of a console guy, but I did play it. and um, And the way that the game would work, it's just like any of those uh, any of those games that where you um, you basically build uh, you you, you build up a society, and then eventually you go go to war with other societies until you kind of take over the world. It's one of those games like Risk or something. But the way it starts, you're in this black map, and there's one little spotlight, and it's on you. You're this little character and you can move around and the spotlight will follow you but it also but it doesn't it doesn't darken behind you so the idea is the more you walk around the the more the spotlight gets bigger and bigger so it it, it takes away black from the map that you're on and it, and you can actually see what's there and that's important because you because you need to uh, in the game you need to go get natural resources so you can build you know build your cities and you know build your armies and all that sort of thing uh, but it's just this image of this of this person who's like a spotlight, walking around in the darkness, creating creating more and more light from the darkness and you can see in that light more things, you can see the mountains, you can see the rivers you can see the, the natural resources that are available, you can f- bump into other tribes, all that stuff can happen so you're going and you're exploring the world in this game and you're, in your consciousness, you, you can imagine that like the spotlight that, that's on you your consciousness is illuminating the world around you and the more you explore it the more things come into existence. So you go a little bit over to the right, and suddenly the stuff that's over to the right comes into existence because you've sh- shown your light on it. Um, and again, it's just ex- the, the way the game allows you to explore the world and and um, so that it's sort of a mystery what's around you until you go out and explore, and that this is what's happening in the game, that you're exploring with with your consciousness, with your light, let's say. You're going out and exploring the darkness, the unknown, And you are bringing the world into being by doing it. So you go out and explore, and the things you find, those things now exist. Why? Because you found them. So, this is what he means, I think, when he says that you build the world this way. All right, he goes on to say things have no absolutely fixed significance, despite our ability to generalize about their value. It is our personal preferences, therefore, that determine the import of the world. The meaning of things depends to a profound degree upon the relationships of those things to the goal we currently have in mind. Meaning shifts when goals change. And I I bolded that last one. Meaning shifts when goals change. And that's what I was saying before about you having control over your point B. So if you change your goal you can literally change your entire life or the way you experience the world. And I think it's interesting here when he says things have no absolutely fixed significance despite our ability to generalize about their value. So again, he might say something like um, that food is generally considered good and that people can, from all over the world and all across history and time, can say we generally agree food is good. So that's something that we can generalize about the value of food, okay? But he's saying that nothing has fixed significance. So that food might have less value to some person and more value to another, or different different values, you might say. So, you know, a, a piece of cake to a hungry person is going to have much more value to one that's stuffed. Um, and I think that's interesting because, just like we are talking about the yin-yang earlier where we said that the... Um, that the unknown exists in the known and the known and the unknown, and that one can become the other in, in a moment's notice. That that's the idea of the image. Uh, and when he says that nothing has fixed significance or fixed meaning, um, what that reminds me of is um, maybe something like what Kyle and I talked about the other day where we said uh, that objective reality, that we can't really know what that is, that that thing behind our experiences. But I imagined it something like that... that um, that metallic stuff that the villain in Terminator two is made of that can just change shape. It's like this potential. It's like this substance that can become anything. Um, and so that, that's what comes to mind when he says that things have no absolutely fixed significance that really we, we know things have meaning, but that that meaning is different for everybody. Um, and that's, I think that's what he's getting at when he says it has no fixed significance. Um, and and it, 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 brings to my mind things that we talked about from the various like physics conversations we've had where like deep down things are not one state um, or the other. The things are not uh, a wave or a particle They're They're both. So you might say that like at the most fundamental level of matter, that matter has no fixed qualities. And he's saying meaning has no fixed qualities. excuse me so I think that's interesting and then he says it's our personal preferences that determine the import of the world which geez what a a sentence what a thing to say Um, and here he's basically saying that we choose our goals so we can we can change the meaning of things in the world simply by changing our goals that that's entirely under our control alright so if I have a I have a bag full of peanut M&Ms uh, in, my, in my hand here, and I say to myself, um, I don't like chocolate, then the bag of M&Ms is, is useless. But if I say to myself, you know what, uh, I haven't eaten in two days, and I'm starving, um, these M&Ms uh, suddenly change, the value of the M&Ms suddenly changes. And, so, and maybe I'm rethinking even my preferences about the taste of chocolate at that point. So this is what, this is what he means. Meaning shifts when goals change. All right, he says, If things or situations were straightforwardly positive or negative, good or bad, we would not have to make judgments regarding them. We would not have to think about our behavior and how and when it should be modified. Indeed, we would not have to think at all. So again, he says, If things were straightforwardly good or bad, we wouldn't have to think at all. He says, We are faced, however, with a constant problem of ambivalence and meaning which is to say that a thing or a situation might be bad and good simultaneously. And again, that, that brings to mind that particle-wave duality thing we talked about or the, um, the fact that meaning has, doesn't have a fixed significance, let's say, or things don't have fixed meanings, um, that all of this stuff seems to be tied together. Uh, but it's also interesting the fact that he says um, if, if things were straightforwardly positive or negative, good or bad, that we wouldn't have to think about them um, you know, again, it, it frames the situation of good and bad as as something that's kind of entirely in your head, and I think that's that's the point. Um, but in your head, th- those things really are good and bad simultaneously. So it has everything to do with your goals and your ability to adapt to, to reach those goals. That makes them good or bad. That's something that's happening in your in your psyche, and it's based upon your goals. It's based upon your morality, um, which again is just another way of, of saying what Jordan said before, that your point B, the future, the desired future that you want to bring into the world, that that is what you value. You value more than your current state. And you can't say something is better than something else without making a moral judgment about it. And you control that. You control your point B. And Jordan says this, meaning depends on context, stories in a word constitute goals, desires, wishes. It is unfortunate that we have many goals, many stories, many visions of the ideal future, and that the pursuit of one often interferes with our chances of obtaining another. We solve the problem of contradictory meanings by interpreting the value of things from within the confines of our stories, which are maps of experience and potential. Meaning depends on context. And he's saying that that's our stories, the stories that we tell. Um, and again, he's just making the point here that, that people have often juggling multiple goals and sometimes all at once, and sometimes those goals conflict. So it's not as straightforward as, as you know, maybe we've painted it so far. Um, you know, we do control our point, our point B, but we have lots of forces in our, in our bodies and minds, you, you might say, that are conflicting with one another. So this is also a problem. He goes on to say that the subsystems that make up our nervous system and are responsible for our instincts, things like hunger, joy, lust, they do not appear to directly grip control of our behavior. So when you're looking at the brain, the the, um, the various hemispheres of the brain, he's saying that that those subsystems that those that correspond to our instincts that control things like our anger, our lust, our hunger, those things that we have to we have to address or, or we don't survive. Those are built way deep down and they're very very ancient. He says that they don't appear when you look at the brain and the nervous system. They don't appear to actually take over control of your behavior. It's not like you get hungry and um, all of those feelings um, you know come about the um, Maybe maybe it's uh, you know it's anger or, or something to do with um, wanting wanting to get food for yourself versus somebody else. you know maybe it's putting all your other all your other instincts uh, aside because you're so hungry that the hunger means more than anything else at the moment it kind of overcomes you and that that's going to cause you to uh, behave you know rashly, let's say he's saying that it doesn't doesn't quite work that way that when you when they look at the brain, they can see that these Subsystems in the brain, you know what they're doing and when, but they they don't seem to actually take control of our behavior. It's not like our hunger system grabs control of our body and makes us eat. That it doesn't quite happen that way. He says rather they appear to influence our fantasies, our plans, and then modify the content and comparative importance of our goals or our our ideal futures. So this is interesting. Um, he again. He's saying that the hunger system is not directly gripping control of your behavior and making you eat. Says it's not like it's not like a determinism thing where you don't have control over it. He says, but what does happen is that these subsystems in your brain will start to play on your subconscious um, functions. It, it, he says, influence your fantasy. So that might be something like somebody who's hungry. Let's say. Can't stop thinking about food. Every time they fall asleep, they're dreaming about food. And those kind of subtle things will start to change their behavior by by changing their goals. So somebody who can't stop thinking about food and every time they fall asleep dreams about food—that's somebody who's going to change their goals to get food. Um, so again, it's not that the that the different systems in the brain arrest control over yourself and make you do something, but they do, but they do slowly trickle out little images and ideas and things in your in your fantasies and your in your internal world that cause you to change your your goals, change your plans, um, you know, that kind of thing. It's it's interesting. It's like um, it's like influencing your influencing you subconsciously more than like forcing you to do something. That kind of thing. He says each basic subsystem has its own particular image of what constitutes the ideal the most valid goal at any given moment. So, you know, the, the part of you that wants to re- procreate, let's say, the, that, you know, the you want to pass on your genes, whatever that part subsystem is in your brain, that it's always wa- wanting to get you laid. And uh, the, the part that net needs to eat to survive is always trying to always trying to get you fatty foods and sugary foods and high-calorie foods and, you know, all these different subsystems in your brain – um, that they're all, they're all competing with, with one another and they all have a different idea of what the ideal is, of what, of what the best future is to bring into being. And that none of these subsystems are making you do anything, but they're making you consider them all at once. So Jordan says, Judgment regarding the significance of things or situations becomes increasingly complicated when the fulfillment of one biologically predicated goal interferes with another. How is our behavior guided when our desires compete? So he answers that question. We manipulate our environments and our beliefs to address this conflict. We change ourselves or the things around us to increase our hope and satisfaction and to decrease fear and pain. Now this is really important because what it does is it says something that we already sort of believe in the West, that we manipulate our environments Yes, human beings absolutely do that. We manipulate our environment. So we're one of those creatures that can manipulate our environments. We have opposable thumbs. We have complex brains. We can plan and think ahead. Uh, We can do what's necessary to manipulate our environment. Before human beings came around, there wasn't many things that could do that, maybe none. So they had to actually change their biology. They had to adapt to the environment. So when the environment changed, their biology changed or else they died out. That's what evolution is. That also happens with us. Um, however, we we now also have the ability to manipulate our environment, which which puts us a little bit more in control of that than maybe any other creature. Uh, it still obviously affects our evolution, but it's something that we that we can also manipulate. He goes a step further and says that we also manipulate our beliefs. So it's not just that we build a shelter to protect ourselves from the cold. So I, I don't have to grow fur to keep myself warm in the winter, let's say. But I can I can manipulate my beliefs to give myself hope, satisfaction, or to or to decrease fear and pain. That I can do that simply by manipulating my beliefs by changing my point B, like we've been saying. That's interesting. So one of the ways in which we are synthesizing all of these competing instincts that are going on in our psyches is to manipulate our environments and our beliefs. And, and so, so that's the external world and the internal world. And we can manipulate both. Okay, so it's evolution happening on both of those levels, the external and the internal. And that's very important. So Jordan says using the higher cortical or executive systems of the brain we make decisions about what is to be regarded as valuable at any given time but the neurological subsystems that keep us alive all have a voice in those decisions a vote So that that kind of makes me think of maybe the freudian idea of a superego that you've got all these um, you got all these competing like sub personalities going on in your, in your brain that exist together, but you've got this thing, the super ego that overarches them all and kind of in, in, in the, this Jordan Peterson way of putting it, it kind of tallies the vote of all of the subsystems in the brain and ultimately makes the decision. It's like a representative democracy going on. So there's still a, you know, there's still a, there's still a president, let's say. Um, and, and, uh, uh, an interesting way of looking at it but somebody's making the final decision taking into consideration all of those competing s- forces in in your in your psyche and this is interesting he says the man obsessed with power may sacrifice everything including his family to the attainment of his narrow ambition the empathetic consideration of others a time consuming business merely impedes his progress his faith in the value of his progress therefore makes threat and frustration even of love wow what an example so he, here he's just painting the picture of this obsessed you know um, let's, let's call it a politician because they're they're the ones obsessed with power generally so you've got somebody who wants to get he wants to get power he wants to get as much power as possible and they get obsessed with it they're willing to sacrifice whatever they need to sacrifice to get as much power as possible even their own family so if their they're, if they're, if they're spouse and children, whatever, are holding them back, they'll just dump them too. And, and what he's saying here is that this person's faith and the value of the progress they're making towards their goal of power, and you know say what you will about that, he says that it turns love, the love he has for his family, into a threat and a frustration. That if, that if, if a love gets in his way, uh, in the way of reaching his goal that he will even consider love as a frustration that this is the power that you have in determining the value of of the things going on in your life you select the point b and if you, and if selecting point b makes love a threat and a frustration to you maybe you should rethink your sto- your story maybe you should rewrite that some bitch all right all right, we're we're getting we're getting towards the end here. So let's talk about unexplored territory. Let's talk about chaos. Let's let's focus on this. Jordan says the appearance of the unexpected pops us out of unconsciousness, complacency and forces us painfully to think. And this is the idea that uh that you know, we're kind of on autopilot um a lot of the times. Um things that we've learned, we don't have to think about, Uh, it becomes easy for us, you know, like me trying to type on a keyboard versus when I first started, Um, that that those things become unconscious and that we don't have to think about them and that really we don't like to think about things. You know, if we have to uh, do work so that we can build whatever systems we need in our brains to learn a new task like typing on a keyboard, once we've learned it, we just want to type on the keyboard. Um, You know, we, we we don't want the pain of having to learn to type. We just want to be able to type. Um, and, and that he's, he calls it he calls that painful. You know, it's painful to have to think. So if I learn how to type, and then somebody comes up with a new design for a keyboard and plops it down in front of me and the keys are in a different position, I am not happy with that. I'm not even happy thinking about that right now. And this is what he says, that when you encounter the unknown, that it forces you to think. And that that's something people don't like to do, and this is why he's calling it painful. And I think that's important. It's important to mention that because you might wonder why why do people not go out and explore chaos if there's opportunity out there? Why do people not do that? You know, why do people waste big stretches of their life doing nothing? You know, making nothing of themselves, trying nothing, um, just happy to just float from day to day until they die? Why? Because it's Hard, because it's hard, and people don't like pain. To suffer through something hard, to learn to think, it's painful. Necessary, but painful. And one thing that Jordan says that I, I think is great, and I'll have to paraphrase this too because I can't quite remember how he put it. But he says something like this: like, like, like the Buddhists say, um, life is suffering. That's that's the truth. You can't you can't live and avoid pain it's impossible. So he basically says, "Look, you're going to suffer and you're going to be in pain in your life. Accept that. You can't get around that." The thing is, what are you what are you going to suffer for? Do you want to make that something meaningful? Something that that makes the suffering worthwhile? Or is it going to be just meaningless? You, you have a choice. You can make it meaningful or meaningless. You don't have a choice about the suffering part. You're going to do that either way. So you might want to make it meaningful. And I think this is tied in here. All right, he goes on to say, what is the significance or the meaning of the unknown? It might seem logical to assume that the answer is none. Something unexplored cannot have meaning because none has yet been attributed to it. The truth, however, is precisely opposite. If you can't tell what something means because you don't know what it is, what then does it mean? It is not nothing. Rather, it could be anything. And that is precisely the crux of the problem. Things we have not yet explored have significance prior to our adaptation to them, prior to our determination of their implication for behavior. So remember, Jordan Jordan says implication for behavior. He, he means meaning. So he says, things have meaning prior to our determination of their meaning. Absolutely, absolutely. So that so that's interesting. So what is the significance of the unknown? What's the meaning of the unknown? It has meaning even before we've experienced it. What is that? Um, and he says it could be anything, and that's important to take in, to take into consideration. That when you encounter the unknown, what it might mean is the most important thing you can imagine. Um, it could be the opposite of that, but it could it could be you know, the diamond in the rough. All right, so he says, such things come loaded with meaning. And when he says such things, he means the unknown or the unexperienced. So such things come loaded with meaning, both positive and negative. The class of all novel things have a potentially infinite significance. What does something that might be anything mean? It means the worst that could be and the best that could be. So this is interesting. I mean, the unknown is something that has meaning. It has meaning, and your body responds to it inst- instinctively with this orienting reflex. Even though you've never experienced it before, you know it has meaning, and your instinct is to seek it out. And at what, what it means could be ultimately good or ultimately bad. And that reminds me again of the kind of uncertain state of, of quantum physics. You know, things could be here Uh, or there, electrons could be here or there, there's no way of telling where, they could be anywhere, you know, a a particle could be um, a wave, excuse me, a a quantum bit could be a wave or a a particle, uh, or both simultaneously, that this is all ringing true from the the psychological perspective, but from the perspective of physical science and from the perspective of the mystic experience. All right. He says, the process of exploring the emergent unknown is therefore guided by the interplay between the emotion of curiosity, hope, excitement on one hand, and anxiety and fear on the other. All right. He says about about encountering the unknown, he says, my old plan, my old story has vanished uh, once I encounter the unknown, and I do not know how to evaluate my current circumstances. My emotions, previously constrained by the existence of a temporarily valid plan, reemerge in a confused jumble. I am anxious, frustrated, angry, and curious. An emissary of chaos, to speak metaphorically, has disrupted my emotional stability. Okay, so he's saying, you know, I I, I had, temporarily anyway, I had a plan uh, that I had constructed that was Keeping the chaos in check. That was the plan. That's moving me from point A to point B. It's the it's the culture that's protecting me from the, from from nature. Um, but when that vanishes, when I encounter the unknown, then I'll, all of a sudden I'm I'm a I'm a jumble of emotion. All of that that um, orienting re- orienting reflex comes back. All of these emotions are experienced um, negatively: anxiety, frustration, anger, all that sort of thing. And, and then and then it says. Um, Once formulated, plans, and he's talking about plans to bring about the ideal future, govern our behavior until we make a mistake. A mistake which is the appearance of a thing or a situation not envisioned indicates that those plans and presumptions are in error and must be updated or, heaven forbid, abandoned. As long as everything is proceeding according to plan, we remain on familiar ground. But when we err, we enter unexplored territory. So this is the encounter with the unknown. He says the infinite human capacity for error means that encounter with the unknown is inevitable in the course of human experience and that the likelihood of such an encounter is certain. The existence of the unknown, paradoxically enough, can be regarded as an environmental constant. Adaptation to the existence of this domain must occur. So here again, he's just stacking evidence on, on top of, of evidence that, that the orienting reflex is instinctual, that it's something that uh, is a part of our, uh, that the unknown is, is that this mythological idea of the unknown is part of what we're adapted to, and it's a, const, a constant feature of our environment. He goes on to say, "'It is where the unpredictable emerges "'that the possibility for all new "'and useful information exists. "'It is during the process of exploration.'" that all knowledge and wisdom is generated, all boundaries extended, all territory explored, mapped, and mastered. The eternally extant domain of the unknown, therefore, constitutes the matrix from which all knowledge emerges. So see here he's just saying that the unknown is this, uh, whatever it is, you know, whatever it is. And he talks about this class of all Um, unexplored things, like the unknown might mean anything, but we could lump together all the things we don't know and we just have this class of unknown things. We're just going to label this the unknown with a capital T. And he says that uh, this domain, the domain of the unknown, that's where all information comes from, all new information. We have to go there into the darkness. We have to go into the place that we haven't explored to learn something new. And he goes on to say, everything presently known, everything rendered predictable, was at one time unknown and had to be rendered predictable. The matrix is of indeterminate breadth. Despite our great storehouse of culture, we are still fundamentally ignorant and will remain so no matter how much we learn. The domain of the unknown surrounds us like an ocean surrounds an island. We can increase the area of the island, but we never... Take away much from the sea. Whew. Wow, um, I don't know what I don't know what I can add to that. Um, apart from saying that that he's basically saying that our culture, which we developed to deal with the unknown, to 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 give us a map to guide us through, uh, you know, dealing with that, um, that 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 map has to be updated. So he he's basically saying that we we're we're ignorant. We know almost nothing and that as much as we learn that will never change. That things are always changing, our knowledge is always insufficient and so we have to continually update our culture and we have to continually update the 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 maps of of meaning in our in our minds, our our internal stories, our narrative. He says we tend to view the environment as something objective. And this is interesting, but one of its most basic features, familiarity or lack thereof, is something virtually defined by the subjective. And I'll have to explain this. So I, I, I bolded that sentence because I thought it was so important, but he's basically saying that when we when we think about the environment, you know, the, like when we're talking about what we're adapted to, the world around us, we tend to think about that as objective, you know, like species adapt to the environment. Um... But he's saying that one of the most basic features of our environment is whether or not it's familiar to us. So whether it's known or unknown. So that's what our environment is made of. Part of it we know, part of it we don't. So our environment we think of as something objective, is the world out there. And what he's saying is that one of the things that's the most significant to us about the world out there is whether we know it or, or don't. And that is something that's completely subjective. It's different for every one of us. That's amazing. So it has some explanatory power about why all of us um, you know, evolve and adapt differently, because the world of our experience is different for every one of us. It's really interesting. And it also makes consciousness it, it puts consciousness and role front and center here, because you know, because it's, it's, it's the knower. It's consciousness that's doing the exploration, that's, that's existing in the known and, and exploring the unknown. All right, Jordan says, It is the case that the human brain and the brain of higher animals has specialized for operation in the domain of order and the domain of chaos, and it is impossible to understand the fact of this specialization unless those domains are regarded as more-than-mere metaphor is more than mere metaphor. He's saying the brain would not be adapted to chaos and order unless chaos and order were were somehow as real as anything else that our biology has to adapt to it. He goes on to say that emotion provides us with an initial guide when we don't know what we're doing, when reason alone will not suffice. He says cognition, by contrast, allows us to construct and maintain our ordered environments and keep chaos and affect in check. So, so it's, so he's making a distinction here between emotions and then our cognition or what we might think of as thinking. It's like emotion is a type of thinking, but it's not the same thing as thinking. So what is that? Um, So perhaps it's emotion that constitutes our instinct. So like, you know, our, our, our unconscious actions. If so, the archetype uh, archetypes of Jung or the transpersonal forces that that uh, Jordan Peterson talks about, they're symbolic representations of our unconscious motivations. That those are our e- are our emotions. Their unconscious origin explains why they are why are they they are precognitive. They're they're, they're not part of that cognition or that thinking that we talked about, uh, and they come across as powerful urges or feelings that aren't understood very well. Uh, that that all ties. To the idea of an instinct, you know, that unconscious uh, instinct, um, and so there's a connection here between emotions and our instincts. That somehow, the emotions that we feel are something like our instincts communicating with us, or communi- communicating with our the part of our consciousness that oversees all of this, you know, all of the subcomponents. All right, Jordan says consciousness is affiliated tightly with orienting. We already talked about that, how you encounter something new and it it sucks your attention to it. So consciousness is affiliated with that, therefore appears as a phenomenon critically involved in the evaluation of novelty or the unknown. This means that consciousness plays a centrally important role in the generation of the predictable and comprehended world from the domain of the unexpected. The combination of what we have explored and what we have still to evaluate actually comprises our environment, and it is to that environment that our physiological structure has been matched. So, he, again, he's just talking about how we have evolved or adapted not not just psychically but physically with our with our biology to the fact of the unknown and the known in the world, and that that is something that's tied directly to our consciousness. So, it, Jordan doesn't go as far as to as to say what that important role of consciousness is. Just to say that here it's here it's revealing itself kind of deeply deeply behind the scenes all right so what is this orienting reflex I'll give you guys a little bit of the technical stuff and i'll <clears throat> I'll try to move through this uh, quickly because it's a little dry but so, um, Jordan talks about the orienting reflex coming from the limbic unit of the brain and the reason that's important and I alluded to this before is that the limbic unit is an old old structure in the brain deep deep down it's one of the earliest things that developed in our nervous system so we share it in common with basically all other living creatures um, and he says this is where the orienting reflex comes from so that's that's important this very ancient part of the brain he says it is the orienting reflex which manifests in emotion thought and behavior this is at the core of the fundamental human response to the unknown this reflex is is as primordial as hunger or thirst, as basic as sexuality. The orienting reflex is the instinctual reaction to the category of all occurrences which have not yet been categorized. It is at the core of the process that generates knowledge of sensory phenomenon and motivational relevance. The orienting reflex substitutes for particular learned responses when the incomprehensible suddenly it makes its appearance appearance of the unknown motivates curious hopeful exploratory behavior regulated by fear as a means to update the working model of reality to update the known the orienting reflex is the involuntary gravitation of attention to novelty the orienting reflex and the exploratory behavior following its manifestation allows for the differentiation of the unknown into the familiar categories of objective reality. And then lastly, when something occurs that is not intended, the hippocampus shifts mode and prepares to update cortical memory storage. It prepares to rewrite your story, or your map of meaning behavioral controls shifts from the cortex to the limbic system which has powerful output to centers of motor control this shift of control allows the activation of structures governing orienting heightened intensity of sensory processing and exploration all right so what does all this mean so i I started uh, earlier to talk about how this very ancient part of the brain is where this orienting reflex comes from and Jordan says, look, it's, it's just as primordial, it's just as fundamental as the things that govern hunger and thirst and sex. It's right there with all of those things necessary that, that are necessary for us to, to, to exist, to live. Um, and he says that it's the same reaction that we have to anything we encounter that's unknown. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, And that and that it is part of the process that not only generates knowledge and populates our world like we talked about before, but it also determines the motivational relevance. That's the meaning of things. So that orienting reflex is part of this this thing that that creates our internal world and assigns meaning to everything. Okay, um, and again he makes some mention here to it being uh, involved with the gravitation of attention to novelty, so he's talking about it in relationship with with consciousness. Um, and then he brings up this idea of the uh, the connection to the hippocampus, which he says, look, when we encounter the unknown, and this very deep ancient part of our brain is telling us to explore it cautiously, um, that 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 is connected to another system of of the brain that uh the limbic system that has powerful output to centers of motor control so it, he basically says look these emotions that you're having are driving your behaviors they, they are queuing you up to do something to take action and it's not specific action exactly because we don't know what we don't know the unknown is something that we don't know so we don't know we don't know how to act in its presence but we can prepare the body to act in general and that's what it does. That's what that fight or flight is doing. That that you know, if you ever have those moments, uh, those moments where you've got the um, adrenaline coursing through your through your, your your blood, you know, it's your body is sort of primed to act in any way that it might need to. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. And there's this connection to emotions, like it's like emotions are the language of of the unknown. So Jordan says this. He says. <clears throat> But how can emotion attach itself to what has been... Yeah, I'll start over. But how can emotion attach itself to what has, by definition, not yet been encountered? No learning has taken place, yet emotion reveals itself in the presence of error. It appears, therefore, that the novel comes preloaded with affect. This is, this is emotion. And that's true. You know, when you encounter the unknown, even though you know nothing about it, it does evoke emotion so what is that he says it is the amygdala at bottom that appears responsible for the generation of this a priori meaning terror and curiosity so a priori just means before experience so he's saying the amygdala this again very ancient part of the brain appears to be responsible for this before experience this this meaning that we that we get which is something like terror and curiosity the amygdala appears to automatically respond to all things or situations unless told not to. That's interesting. So he's saying that the that the amygdala has to be inhibited, that it's gonna it's gonna do, um, it's it's going to respond all the time unless it's turned off, something like that. And it says um, says uh, it is told not to, so it's it's turned off when behaviors produce the desired results. When error occurs, the amygdala is released from, from inhibition and labels the unpredictable occurrence with meaning. So that's interesting. It's like this it's like this um, it's like this fear and curiosity, this terror and curiosity that, that we're talking about, this emotion that gets triggered by the unknown in us. <clears throat> that all of that stuff it's our default it's our default state. Like terror and curiosity is always on unless it's turned off. So that's like our default state. I think that's really interesting. And then, and then it says that when our, like when our nervous system has modeled the world, like we talked about, and notices the pattern in the, in the world out there is different from the pattern it's mapped. That When that happens, the, um, the, amyg- the amygdala gets released from, in- from inhibition. So you go back to your natural state, which is a state of terror and curiosity. What does that mean? All right, so he goes on to say, the amygdala says, in effect, if you don't know what it is, you'd better pay attention to it. Attention constitutes the initial stage of exploratory behavior. Well, that's uh, no shit. I mean, it's something something uh, unexpected happens it will absolutely draw your attention. They've even done these experiments where they'll just, they'll just play a tone like, like headphones, uh, you know, into your headphones, you're sitting there listening to a tone and they'll, they'll, they'll basically do EEG scans where they say, um, after a while you do the same tone that people's brain don't, they, they stop responding to it. Um, but then if they put the tone in the other ear or if they change the pitch a little, that any of those sorts of changes fired the brain right back up. So the, the, the brain that was, uh, used to hearing the tone that adapts to it and stops responding to it that orienting reflex let's say is stops Um, but the moment you enter any novelty any anything unexpected or unknown into the picture bam the brain fires back up again interesting all right human beings do not learn to fear new objects or situations fear is the a priori position natural response to everything for which no structure of adaptation has been designed fear is the innate reaction to everything that has not been rendered predictable as a consequence of successful creative exploratory behavior so that's exactly what I was saying earlier that when the amygdala is inhibited and we can we can we return to our natural state that that state is one of fear and curiosity and that is our natural state the, the peace that we feel in the, in the in the you know that when we aren't distracted by fear and curiosity that those things are 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 not natural those things have to be inhibited those those things have to be um, stopped by something and that something is the story that we tell ourselves uh in our in our culture the things that protect us from the unknown so fear is our default situation. Human beings do not learn fear to new objects. Fear is our default. That's what he's saying. And, and I find this interesting, and I'm going to go back to an, a visual that I mentioned earlier, and it's about um, it's about that Terminator 2 stuff. So that when I say if you look behind behind your experiences, that there's something there in the objective world, something that we can't really experience. We're only experiencing this sort of, half truth this representation of the world this inner world that we live in but if we could peek over the veil and see the substance behind our experiences what we would see is something that i call potential this is this is that terminator 2 villain metal that can change into anything it's just this liquid substance that can f- shift shape and change into whatever it wants i i picture that as just sheer sheer potential um i also imagine that as something like what i imagine god is and i I've, I've had experiences in the in the mystic experience where i I've, I've encountered this before and it's it's so deeply terrifying it's hard for me to explain but it's something like being confronted by something so great that it's that it's existence it threatens to wash you away something something like that and it's it's something that's awe inspiring and it, it, it it's it's makes you feel all kinds of things, but fear is a big part of it. It's like you feel so diminished in comparison to this thing that you could just be swallowed up by it and it would be oh so easy. And uh, that's kind of what I think of when I read this. When I read this thing that says fear is our default uh, reaction and it's the reaction we have to the unknown, that in truth, objective reality, this potential that's all around us, it, it, it is the unknown it is the great unknown and of course our natural reaction to that because we're swimming in it you know our consciousness exists in the sea of the unknown and of course our, our Response to that would be fear of course. That would be our natural response. We, we are a We're something like a little guppy dropped into a uh, tank full of piranha. Let's say that are invisible And, uh, you know, (laughs) just to give you a a silly example, um, something like that. So, of course, fear is our default. All right, now he quotes a different guy, uh, a researcher named Ladue, and he says, "...similar responses are expressed when laboratory rats are exposed to a cat for the first time. Suggesting that the responses are genetically specified, since, since they appear when the rat sees a cat, its natural predator for the first time and it involves the amygdala so the way that the that the rat responds to a cat even for the first time involves the amygdala the same way we were talking about this orienting business so he says the fact that that electrical stimulation of the amygdala is capable of eliciting the similar response pattern further supports the notion that the responses are hardwired. So what he's saying is that he can trigger that orienting reflex, that that terror and curiosity sensation, that he can actually make that happen in rats just by shocking their amygdala. And again, that's evidence that it's not it's not just the the smell of the cat that's doing this to the rat; that it's something that is already in its brain. It's hardwired in. Whew, man. So he says. What happens if an animal encounters something truly unexpected? The answer to this question sheds substantial light on the nature of the orienting reflex. The unexpected appearance of a predator, where nothing but defined territory previously existed, terrifies the rats badly enough that they scream about it persistently for a long period of time. Once this initial terror abates, curiosity is disinhibited and the rats return to the scene of the crime. The space that was renovelized by the cat, it was turned again into unknown by the cat, has to be transformed once again into explored territory as a consequence of active modification of behavior, not by passive desensitization. So what he's saying is that the rats have to have to go back out into the place where they knew the danger was, where they knew the cat was. They have to go back out there voluntarily and walk around and map it back out again so that it becomes explored territory again. If they don't do that, the fear does not go away. They can't just wait it out. So he says, not by passive desensitization. It's not like the the rats can just sit there, and after long enough time has passed, then they're comfortable again. It doesn't happen. In fact, if they don't go out and explore, they'll just be in a paranoid, irrational fear until they die. Um, That going out voluntarily and exploring is absolutely necessary to reestablish order, to rewrite that, that rat story so that, it can, so that it can exist, so that it can live and function again. He says, the, rat, the rats run across the territory contaminated by the presence of the cat to find out if anything dangerous still lurks there. The rats transform the dangerous unknown into familiar territory as a consequence of voluntary exploration. In the absence of, of such exploration, terror reigns unchecked. And here, here what I have to point out is this idea of voluntarily facing the unknown. So the idea that the, that the cat has to go back out and sniff around in the place where they knew the cat was only, only minutes ago, that once they're done being like terrified beyond imagining, they have to go out into the unknown again where they know the cat lurks to make sure it's safe. And if they don't do that, if they don't take the risk and explore that they will never be unafraid enough to go back out to eat or drink or, or sleep with little, you know, uh, rat women, it dies. So it's completely necessary for this rat to voluntarily go back into the unknown to map it. And if it doesn't do that, it dies. And there's an analogy here to ourselves and to everything. There's something that comes to mind about the story of Jesus as well. Um, The idea that somebody had to voluntarily face, um, you know, torture and death and, and according to the the myth anyway, the story, to shoulder the the sins of the world, the burdens of the world, and to take responsibility for all of that, and to suffer and die in the worst possible way, that Jesus had to do that voluntarily. He could have escaped, but he didn't. But he didn't. He couldn't. Um, if he would have been dragged, kicking and screaming by the Romans, tortured and killed that way, that that the me- that the message of Jesus would not have been the same. The story of Jesus would not have been the hero story. It would have been something something different. that voluntarily facing the unknown, um, that the voluntary part is important. Just like I we talked about with the rats, they had to choose to go back into the unknown or they wouldn't be able to continue living their lives. Interesting. All right, so what have we learned? Well, we learned that our nervous systems are hardwired to respond to the unknown, that the unknown is an unconditioned stimulus. It's an instinct, something that we respond to um, before we have any experience of it. And this is evidence that we are biologically adapted to it, that we are evolved to it to this mythological idea of the known and the unknown just as much as to our material surroundings our environment that somehow our psycho our psychology our our inner world is a part of the environment to which we are are physically adapted that our, our evolution is happening uh, again on the on the material side of things with our bodies but also in in our, in our minds so we're adapted to our external environment but we're also adapted to our internal environment The known, the unknown, and the knower. The unknown is completely subjective. It's different for everyone and at every moment. The unknown is a feature of consciousness and not of the material world exactly. Our consciousness directs our evolution, at least as powerfully as our external environment. We can control the narrative of our lives and our emotions by changing the goals we pursue. The fact of the unknown triggers our exploratory instinct. It calls us uniquely. So each one of us has our own personal interests. The unknown is calling to us in our our individual ways. The following of this instinct is the narrative of our lives. The people who follow their interests, who explore the unknown, they're creating the hero's journey, really, but they're creating the story of their lives. The people who don't explore their personal interests and chase after the unknown, their stories are dull. Perhaps not stories at all. And we see these same stories told in myths and rituals across time and in every culture story of creation and the hero story, everything from Gilgamesh to the Avengers. All right, guys, so this has been The Unknown. Uh, the next episode, we'll be focusing on the other side of this coin, The Known. So now that we've got our heads wrapped around chaos, we still need to explore order. This is only half the story, after all. What is yin without yang? All this and more on the next installment.